electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. And here's what's ahead on this Friday. Recovery roadblock. The reopening stocks aren't working right now. Neither are the stay-at-home ones. So how is the market still at all-time highs again today? We'll ask. And a family that sold everything, a house, three cars, they sold it all back in 2017 and put it into Bitcoin back when it was at 900 bucks. It obviously worked out pretty well for them, but wait till you hear the extraordinary lengths they have to go to to keep that crypto safe. And in rapid fire, Disney's big double, Apple's privacy problems, and Judgment Day at the box office. But let's start with those markets as we mentioned some record highs again today. Christina Partsadevilis is here with the numbers. Christina. Happy Friday the 13th. Are you feeling lucky or unlucky today? Because the markets are in the green and we're on track to finish the week mostly higher. A closely watched gauge of consumer sentiment, that's from the University of Michigan, plunged to its lowest level in 2000, since 2011. So the decline was due to some consumers worried about the Delta variant. And that could mean the pandemic to them ain't over anytime soon. So we've got consumer staples, healthcare. Uh, some of the win- winners, you can see healthcare because of the vaccines driving names to the upside. And then communication services. Think Disney among the best performers. We move on to energy on your screen. That's down again. It's been at least actually 19 days in which no member of the index traded above its 50-day moving average. It's been decades since that happened. And then treasuries rallying, although yields still higher for the week. The 10-year yield back down to 1.3 that we're seeing on the screen right now. And I know we're going to talk about this later, Disney. But take a look at some alternatives like Cedar Fair. The ticker is fun for the week, as well as Six Flags. This is for just the month to date. You can see it all trending higher. Cedar actually doing the best. And then we've got Jessica Alba's Baby and Beauty Company reported worse than expected Q2 results. And you can see on your screen now, the stock is plunging down 26%. And let's end with some online thrift. Thread up. And we're going to bring you Poshmark as well as the real, real threat being the clear winner on the week. Real, real and Poshmark down double digits, well below 15% lower. Wow, some pretty big swings. Christina, thank you so much. But let's turn to the momentum in the market with the Delta variant, at the very least delaying the economic rebound, with rates potentially bottoming out as a result. Bob Bassani has more on these two big topics moving stocks today, Bob. Hello, Kelly. Uh, We are at new highs because we're halfway through the third quarter, believe it or not. And the two themes are in place. As Kelly mentioned, Delta variant is slowing, but not derailing the recovery. And number two, interest rates have likely bottomed and will be moving up. That's why we're at new highs. Let me just show you sectors that have been moving in the last six weeks. So materials and industrials remain very strong. Big names like Dover, for example, some of the material names like Martin Marietta, infrastructure stocks continuing to do very well, as you can see here. Textron, Deere up 9 or 10 percent. Then we have rates. They've been moving up since the strong July jobs report. Financials have been strong. Really big names like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs hitting new highs every single day this week. Even small 
smaller companies like Nasdaq's having a great quarter. It's near new highs as well. Consumer stocks are kind of split. We have that small group of super sellers, the Target, the Costco, the Walmarts. They're continuing to make market, take market share. Everyone believes you can get anything you want at these stores. They're big winners this year. But consumer discretionary is also doing well. Why? Because the consumer is flush with cash from savings and from stimulus. So they're doing really well. So people are going out to restaurants more. People are buying carpets like Mohawk, and they're buying a lot more lipstick. Ulta Beauty is also a, a big winner here. But food and other staples are kind of down here. That's not surprising. Consumers are spending less on food at home. So Campbell's, Clorox, Kraft Heinz, the usual suspects uh, are trading down. This, again, lasts six weeks here. Finally, the big wild card is technology. Tech is very sensitive to higher interest rates. But the mega caps, the tech stocks, are handling slightly higher rates very well, as you can see. Semiconductors are mixed, maybe a little bit of underperformance there. But the key story here is higher rates, Kelly, are helping the markets look through the Delta variant. Modestly higher rates, not hurting tech. And Kelly, who knows if the 10-year went to 1.8%, I think there'd be a little bit of a bigger problem. But right now, tech is handling this quite well. Kelly? Right now, that seems like a distant milestone. Bob, we appreciate it. Bob Bassani, thank you so much. Well, despite a slew of companies continuing to push back their reopening plans, the stay-at-home stocks are underperforming. Bob was alluding to this a moment ago, but check out some of these numbers. Zoom is off 38% from its 52-week high. Peloton down 35%. Teladoc is down about 50% from its one-year high. DocuSign as well. Even Netflix and Amazon are off of their highs. So have any of them dropped enough where they've become too cheap not to buy? With us now is Tim Seymour of Seymour Asset Management and a CNBC contributor. Tim, it's good to have you. Which of these stocks would you be buying now? Hey, Kelly. Look, it's it's been a very interesting run for these names. And and clearly, if Delta variants are, are accelerating, you'd think some of these stocks would be starting to rally. We're not really seeing it. But look, when I look at Amazon, they were the poster child of stay-at-home or beneficiaries from COVID. They were the first out of the gates. Um, this stock's been dead money, so it's not down significantly, but it's flat while mega cap techs really outperformed. If you look at those first quarter, uh, excuse me, the second quarter numbers, the big problem was was really that it was a somewhat mixed, uh, slightly light top line, but that the third quarter guide was terrible. At its core, uh, the e-commerce trends that were accelerated in COVID, so all of the stay-at-home dynamics, I think, are the, you know, the long-term thesis everybody knows. In the short run, though, AWS was up 37%. Uh, they, they switched to at least more enterprise customers continues to grow. And I think, you know, I think Amazon, first of all, is the first place you start when you look at these companies. Okay. So Amazon, you'd be a buyer of. What about something like Peloton? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think you've got a case here with, with you know, a Peloton or a, a, a Zoom where I think the valuations are really, really tough relative to where, I, you know, I think at least the near-term growth are. When I look at some other, uh, again, a couple other names that I think make a lot of sense here, DraftKings which just completed a pretty big deal with Golden Nugget, a case where I think, and again, staying at home, online sports betting, iGaming, these are trends that are only just beginning. This company is consolidating a space that, that really continues to grow on the addressable market. So like that a lot. Zillow, uh, another one of these names that I think the real estate market boomed, staying at home, people shopping around, people some of these migration trends that are going on in the housing sector are ones that I think very, very early stage, what they're doing with their IMT and their premier home uh, offerings. Look, inventory has improved. A lot of the froths out of the stock, it's down 50%. The valuation doesn't make sense, but the secular themes are, are alive and well here. 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that Zillow's down 50 percent in one of the strongest housing markets, even Rocket, you know, some of these other players just haven't done as well lately as you might think. So you're not a big fan uh, valuation-wise of a Peloton still, but you like DraftKings, you like Zillow. I mean, so this is kind of picking from the basket of the traditional stay-at-home place. What about somebody like Netflix also has gone nowhere? Yeah, again, I... When I think about the move that Netflix has has made in the last couple of years, and really that it's been largely dead money for for a year, um, I think the valuation has caught up to it. I think the competitive landscape has caught up to it. They they obviously got a boost out of the gates with COVID. Look at Disney subscriber numbers yesterday. I think a lot of people are concerned that Disney's not going to be able to uh, compete with Netflix on ARPU. But I, you know, I, again, I, I think Netflix to me is showing longer term dynamics around the challenge between a company that's never really made money huge cash burn, have to invest in content. And I think there's better places to go in streaming and media right now. And in fact, I think Disney is a better place to go. It's amazing to see Disney trading at a 50 PE, by the way. Um, you know, even as it wiggles around, its, re- its multiple has really increased. Let me just zoom out of this whole discussion for a second and, and ask you, you know, so earlier today, JP Morgan put out a note where they said, look, the COVID numbers are trending really, really badly. You know, this thing is spiking. It's starting to look in some of the states like it did during the worst of it last winter, and it could continue to get worse. And it was interesting because they then said, you know, the economic conclusions from this are a lot less clear because so few places are really trying to do any kind of lockdowns. I mean, maybe you're getting some mask mandates, maybe pushing off return to work. But, Tim, my question for you is, should looking at stay-at-home stocks be the strategy for investors right now. I mean, haven't we already been through this? Don't we know that there might be a little bit of opportunity, but then, you know, the performance uh, from the highs tells you just how risky they are. I mean, what do you think is the right strategy, just broadly speaking, for stock picking right now? Well, look, it's interesting because JP Morgan, I think, to their credit in April, May, uh, June last year was early to get out there and be bullish on the market and and point out some of the dynamics that are not only in terms of ownership of the market, but where they actually thought that there was going to be opportunities. And and the great irony is, of course, this week we've heard Southwest talk about some of the impact on their third quarter numbers. So the airlines have chimed through and talked about Delta, Delta variants, and yet the stocks have actually uh, gone sideways, in some cases rallied a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, as yields rise on a day like today, there's some sense excuse me, as, as yields fall, bonds rise on a day like today, you know, you're pushing back down on this, you know, this growth headwind. And, and yet you'd think that a lot of the big industrial and resource names and reflation trades would be getting hit. They're not. And, and I think the biggest impediment right now for these stay-at-home stocks is that ultimately, in most cases, the valuations don't make sense. Delta variants, while socially we're going through a very difficult time here, uh, I think we're now able to kind of look past the third quarter and the fourth quarter. And while uncertainty and J.P. Morgan talks about the the unknowns that remain, uh, I think we've seen kind of the worst of the market's interpretation of what the Delta variants mean for a lot of these stocks. So um, I I think actually reflation trades are going to continue to see the bounce off of really what had been a pretty devastating four to eight week period for them. Uh, despite the fact that today there are, you know, the, the, the bubbling up growth concerns. Yeah. All right. So for you, it's reflation plays. But if, you know, if you insist on some of the uh, sort of lock in names, Amazon, DraftKings and Zillow are where you'd go. Tim, thanks so much. It's great to see you today. Tim Seymour. Coming up, has inflation already peaked? My next guest says yes, but that you still need to put your cash to work right now. We're going to ask her where and how. Plus, here's the story of a lovely family who sold all they had and invested in crypto back when Bitcoin was at 900 bucks. That's how they became the Bitcoin bunch. We're going to bring you their story, tell you the latest that they're up to right after this. 
Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are holding on to their gains today despite a surprisingly terrible consumer sentiment report this morning. It slumped to levels lower than during the peak of COVID last year. But in fact, both the Dow and S&P hit record highs earlier in the session. So here to talk us through the risks and opportunities in this rally, Emily Rubin is a financial advisor at UBS Global Wealth Management. Emily, it's good to have you. So yeah, you probably just heard we were talking about with Tim Seymour, this whole idea of what kind of stock should people be betting on right now? You obviously are not a stock picker. What's your kind of top level advice to clients to these days? Well, we think that, you know, with the equities having reached highs, I mean, only yesterday, I think it was the 47th time the S&P closed at a high. So we think the easy money has been made in stocks. And when we look out a year from now, there may only be another five or 10 percent. But we're still risk on in our portfolios. And we just are advising our clients to use caution and prepare some for volatility and add some protection to their, their portfolios because we expect some volatility ahead. Yeah. And you're saying, listen, the, the idea of investing to protect yourself against inflation is, you know, let's step back and look at what's been going on with the inflation trend. I, th- I believe you're in the camp that says, look, things might have peaked in terms of growth, but it's still going to remain high. So paradoxically, you still need to invest that cash. Um, real yields are something that you guys track quite closely in that regard, Right. Yes, uh, we do think inflation likely peaked in June and will start to normalize, though some of these price increases are likely here to to stay, particularly those driven by wage increases. So we think inflation will normalize at a little above 2% in 2022, which is certainly higher than we've seen it in recent years. But in the meantime, with very high inflation and very low interest rates, the real yield on cash is at a historic low. This definitely causes us concern with so much cash on the sidelines. In particular, we have several entrepreneur clients who had recent liquidity events, Mm. and we are urging them to help us make a plan with them to put the cash to work because it will be a drag on their returns. Yeah, so give me an example of what that would look like. So if somebody says, you know, I had this, you know, this business success, I have cash now, and you guys are saying, listen, you're going to be falling behind if you just let that pile up and, and kind of sit there at a time like this. But at the same time, you're warning about kind of the stock market and maybe gotten a little too far ahead of itself. I'm sure you're not turning around and saying, yeah, but bond yields look like a great deal right now. So where do you go? Well, it is tough and everyone is cautious and worried about the market being able to sustain these high levels. Although historically investing after a market high has actually not been an impediment to future returns. Um, Looking back at data since 1960, the S&P has averaged 
11.7% after if investing after market highs versus only 11.3% when below the highs. But we suggest that people be cautious, and particularly with these entrepreneur clients that we have who have a lot of risk already in their business, they want a more thoughtful and cautious approach to investing their cash. So for this, we suggest dollar cost averaging in and pulling forward purchases on downside volatility. Historically, that doesn't work, which makes sense because the market goes up over time. In fact, looking back at data since 1960, uh, going in as a lump sum has outperformed averaging in over 12 months over 80% of the time. Hmm. So it's not always the best financial decision to dollar cost average in, but it is a way to get people comfortable getting into the market. It's more of a psychological or invest uh, or emotion, uh, more of a psychological decision. So we want our clients to be comfortable and sleep well at night it doesn't always mean that they're going to get the best return out of it, but it is a way to get them invested. That's super interesting. So if you know if you do win the lotto, stick it all in the market at one time. At one time is the message. I know it is sort of tactically Certainly. speaking, you guys like financials and energy in Japan, which is sort of a, a scattershot group. But financials and energy often have the common link of performing well when value is performing well. Maybe when interest rates are rising, when reopening, maybe is it, you know demand is coming back. That kind of thing is that the scenario that you foresee? Because the consumer sentiment report this morning, like I said, was terrible. Although Jim Paulson points out. Any month, I think, going back, um, you know, f- since 1998 that we've seen that index fall five or more points, the S&P is actually outperformed in the following month or so. Yes, uh, we do. You know, the reflation and uh, trade has had a tough time of it as rates came down. Growth stocks almost started to outperform value this year. But we do think that things are going to settle down and it is a reflation trade. Um, and in particular, as you said, financials and energies and energy uh, sectors that are going to outperform going forward. Financial Financials are behind the S&P by, I believe it's 11% since end of 2019 and energy 50%. So we think there's room for them to catch up. All right, Emily, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Emily Rubin with UBS. Coming up, Disney is on pace for its best week since February after beating estimates and returning to profitability for its U.S. parks. We're going to break down the quarter and the strides they're making in streaming next. There are shares hanging on to about a 2% gain today. And as we head to break, check out the utilities, which is leading all the sectors this quarter. That's an 8% gain. Heat waves across the country helping to fuel a rally, maybe falling rates as well. We're going to look at which stocks could see a summer breakout. We're back in a moment. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. everybody. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're seeing the S&P and NASDAQ in some danger of turning negative here. Remember, both the S&P and Dow hit record highs earlier today, but we're well off those levels. Dow is up more than 100. Now it's up 28. S&P is up four points. NASDAQ is up seven. So we're going to keep a close eye on this. Here are some of the movers. This hour, FedEx is higher after raising peak surcharges and fees going into the holiday season. They're expecting continued high demand, increased operating costs, and a surge in residential volume. The shares fractionally higher, though, today, and they're down about 8% in the past three months. 
months. Meanwhile, shares of Activision Blizzard are lower, despite getting an upgrade at Citigroup to buy, which says it's time to buy the dip. The stock is down 15 percent in the past two months. They are facing regulatory risks in China and that discriminatory lawsuit filed by the state of California. ATVI down about 1 percent again today. City says these concerns are priced in, and though they're dropping their price target to 105, that's still more than 20 percent upside from here. For more on their call, you can head over to CNBC.com slash pro. Coming up, streaming strides, Reddit rakes it in, and the latest box office barometer. All of that is in rapid fire right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch up on a few stories that should be on everybody's radar this hour. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down headlines uh, t- today, she said, Deirdre Bosa is New York Times. Uh, no, she's not a New York Times reporter. Uh, Deirdre Bosa works for CNBC. New York Times reporter Ed Lee is here. He's a CNBC contributor. And Axios chief technology correspondent Ina Fried is in the house as well. Let's get right to Disney, jumping on a return to profitability for U.S. parks and stronger than expected Disney Plus growth. They reported 116 million users, topping estimates and a jump of 12 million from the last quarter, but average monthly revenue per subscriber fell 10% year on year. This is what Tim Seymour was talking about earlier. And Disney warned of uncertainty from the Delta variant too. So Ed Lee, how big a deal is it that their sort of ability to monetize users may be trailing Netflix somewhat? It's, I, I think the, the real story around Disney Plus, it's really all the gains or most of the gains came from India, their Hotstar service, which they've rebranded Disney, Disney Plus Hotstar. So I actually think that's a positive in the sense that they are both tackling growth overseas, which is where Netflix is really getting its growth, while also growing at home. So I think, you know, the, the U.S. market is still tough because of the added competition. At the same time, I think the fact that they've taken advantage of their foothold in India is, is actually pretty smart. It's also the fastest growing region for Netflix as well, uh, even though they've had challenges there. So that's a positive. I think the fact that the stock is up as, was as, up as much as it was on the report. You know, I mean, their linear business is down. Their theme parks sort of swung back to a profit, which is nice. But really, investors are looking at um, the streaming service and basically like looking at it like a Netflix. They're trying to give it a Netflix multiple. And I think that's a positive for the company. But at the same time, I still don't have a cogent sense of where they tend to take, you know, Hulu and ESPN+. Mm-hmm. Plus. There's so many different parts of their streaming service. Although, Deirdre, when we talked to Ben Swinburne earlier in the week, he said he was impressed with the ESPN Plus numbers and where that was tracking. Um, and Disney, I mean, I just can't get over the fact that, it, like to Ed's point, Deirdre, it now has a 50 50- forward PE multiple. That is just astounding to me. <laughs> hey, investors love D2C. To Ed's point, though, yes, the real story and or the biggest story, one of them was India, right? It's expansion there. However, that does get a lower um, revenue per user number. Um, in that sense, though, it's not as profitable as a Netflix. However, the whole idea here of owning the customer and what they can do with that with the other parts of the business, I think that's what makes it so attractive. And we know that Netflix is searching for this on its side. What's it going to do to upsell, cross-sell its users that it has so much data on now? Disney is sort of working that in reverse. Yeah. Eno, I'll give you a last word on this. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at Disney, what's strongest is they have really powerful brands and they have the right content. And so when it comes to that shakeout that every consumer is going to go through, if there's too many D2C things, too many subscriptions, I think Disney, ESPN, Hulu, these are all got the right content. And I think that really matters. All right. And final, I guess, sort of thought on this as we watch this shakeout happen. And we're starting to see it, I think, about Viacom, CBS, you know, some of these players that are still kind of 
figuring things out as we get through more quarters where the, you know, the, the consolidation is happening down to some of these big emerging players. What's going to happen with the rest of the field at this point? So I think it's a fight for one, two, and three place, right? Basically, the, the, the top three will get the bulk of the U.S. market. Um, fourth and fifth will be sort of the smaller niche players. And if, if whoever is in fourth and fifth, whether it's like a Paramount Plus or others, they're going to have a hard time sort of maintaining that. So they will need to bulk up. So despite the sort of the pending uh, Warner Media discovery deal that's coming down the pipe, um, that might not even be big enough, with that, that resulting company. So the streamers, it's going to be a fight for, for basically third place at this point. Netflix is in first place. Disney is in the strong, uh, strong contender for second place. So I think it's looking good for them. Yeah, fight for third. No, that's interesting. Olympics reference there. All right, let's move along. Talk about the latest on the Apple front. Their software chief just spoke to the Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern today, trying to clear up any confusion about their controversial child protection features that were recently announced. The senior software engineering VP, Craig Federighi, saying any miscues may result from poor messaging, but not policy. Listen. I do believe the soundbite that got out early was, oh, my God, Apple is scanning my phone for images. This is not what is happening. Well, he stressed that the scans would only happen in the iCloud and not on users' phones and that its system has multiple levels of auditability to keep policies in check. But critics claim these features go directly against the tech giant's mantra of consumer privacy. And Deirdre, you've had the entire kind of tech world going, well, wait a minute. So, okay, they can distinguish between iCloud and photos, but as we all amass more and more photos, iCloud is a primary storage spot. So this is not for, this doesn't affect a minority of users. It is basically kind of a backdoor into photos on your, you know, that you're taking or that are your property with the iPhone. Right, and it kind of stands in contrast to the messaging that Apple has been working on over the last few years, and that is privacy is number one. But what I found with this is a lot of already Apple critics are using this to further criticize Apple. And one of the you know strongest arguments against this is this whole idea of a slippery slope. What if the Chinese government comes to Apple and says, well, we know you know how to do this. Do this for us on another topic. I'm not sure that I entirely buy that. Apple is already in China and gets a substantial portion of its revenue. So they're already kind of compromised, especially when you look at a Facebook or Google that doesn't operate there. And, you know, I think it was a not a very good rollout. And you have to wonder, does Tim Cook need to enter this fray and maybe come out and say something? Because it was a poor rollout in terms of its communication. Yeah, Ian, I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts, because the China example is an interesting one where Apple has given that government sort of um, access to servers in that country and basically allowing surveillance or whatever you want to call it to happen. Now, they may claim that they're doing something different than that. But I think the way that Ben Thompson put it over at Stratechery is that the only thing holding Apple back now from scanning iCloud photos for anything in the future is is their own policy. And that's why Craig Federighi kind of emphasized, no, our, pol- our policies of all these gatekeepers and, and so forth. But you could say, well, in a world where the management changes, the financial pressures change, the pressures from governments, including the U.S. change, that that policy could now change as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the real concern here. I mean, Apple has tried to have a pretty ideologically pure line. And as people point out, they haven't in China. To do business in China is to agree to the government's concessions. So it's not entirely new. Um, but in the past, you know, they said to the FBI, we're not going to create special software to help you break into phones. Um, you know, I think there is a concern that they are creating software um, 
I do think there's some nuance here that is worthy, and I wrote about this today. I do think what Apple has done that we should take as a positive lesson is they're not just building one mass system that cracks open everything and says, now from the server side, we can look at everything. They created this nuanced system where they have part of the system running on the cloud, part of it running on the device, so that Apple doesn't gain a lot of knowledge. And Apple actually likes to not know a lot about what's on users' device. So I think there's some technical smarts to take away from this. Clearly not a good communication, however. And Ed, I think that the way that a lot of users are reacting to this, it comes at a time when there's been huge interest in Bitcoin, in cryptocurrencies, in privacy in the future of what's going to happen to dollars that the Fed could issue and track, in the need for computer uh, power to sort of be involved with crypto transactions, in the desire to get away from big tech surveillance, maybe on the Google front, and people go, well, now maybe on the Apple front even, I can't be safe. And is that going to push people into looking for other options when it comes to their data? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a risk factor. And I think, you know, another thing that needs to be pointed out here is, you know, I think uh, the, the interview that the Wall Street Journal did was actually very helpful. At the same time, I think there is a distinction that Apple is trying to make that ultimately is, is, is not really a distinction without a difference, which is you own your device, but the cloud is something, you know, more fuzzy where we're mm-hmm. going to have access to. The truth of it is people are paying for cloud access, right? Like your device, you're upgrading it every two or three years. The device itself ultimately doesn't matter. It's really your connection to the cloud, your identity, really. Your Apple ID is so much your value proposition, right? That The Apple's value proposition to users, which is why they stick with the phone. So really, the cloud is your device. Exactly. The cloud is your, your data is the most important thing. And I think that's going to be a concern for a lot no, of people. No, really well said. And again, I think to Deirdre's point, I think there's going to be more to hear uh, on this policy to see if they even walk it back or have to come up with some kind of different solution. Let's move along and talk about the ugly side of meme mania. The Wall Street Bets takeover of Reddit has revived Left for Dead stocks like AMC and BlackBerry, but some critics say it's all a house of cards built on manipulation and it could leave investors holding the bag. Well, the CEO was on Tech Check earlier and he said he won't let that happen. What we care about at Reddit a lot is um, the idea of manipulation. And so whether we're talking about Uh, users, a clever marketing team, or something bigger and more nefarious. Um, People have been trying to game Reddit for a long time, and therefore we've been working to protect Reddit against that for a long time. And I wonder, Deirdre, is it all about them as the gatekeepers of this? I mean, the users themselves are always on the lookout for like, that guy, no, 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 they're all working. You know, they're aware that this whole thing can be manipulated by the shorts, whomever the boogeyman is. Yeah. And, you know, they say that they're getting better at catching that because they know who their user is. But, you know, and we talked a little bit about this yesterday, Kelly, is it's so interesting that you have a fidelity coming in. I know they've invested before, but you have to wonder if the more institutional investors they get, the more advertising dollars they get, that they're going to be held to a higher standard. And of course, they still have some ways to go on that front. Um, But I also asked him whether they had a responsibility perhaps to sort of clean up the site in terms of when it comes to invest pushing towards long-term, like sort of Robin Hood has been doing, right, with the IRAs and saying they need better education to move away from gamification, perhaps. And he said, listen, we're all here for the community. There will probably be both that exist on the site. Ina, do you have any concerns and sort of in the sense that Reddit has been such a big player? They're doing these fundraising rounds. They're at kind of this ultra-high valuation. They're the talk of the town. Where do they go from here? Do they have to go somewhere from here? Do they just keep doing what they're doing? And once the Wall Street Bets fad passes, it'll be on to something else. Well, I do think what Reddit has that most sites don't is they've really found a way to 
own and monetize the community that I think is the envy of most content creators. Because if you look at the old fashioned news ecosystem, you sort of had the expensive to create news and then the free around it community. Reddit is basically that whole community without having to invest in the content they create. Reddit is basically the discussion board of the rest of the internet. And I think that is a very valuable place to be. Obviously, it comes with the moderation concerns that you mentioned, mm -hmm. as well as a host okay. of other moderation, you know, um, you know, terrorist content, pornography, all kinds of other content that they have to deal with. But I'd rather be dealing with content moderation than the costs of an editorial business in general. I love the media. I think journalism serves an important function. I'm all for people finding ways to make it profitable. Um, but I think what Reddit has is pretty unique because they don't have to create the content. They yeah. just have to keep the place that people want to discuss things. It's a great point. And maybe then the biggest risk to any business model like theirs is that the moderation requirements become so high that they actually no longer make it more attractive than, say, a traditional news. Maybe that's what's going to save the traditional news media is when moderation gets so expensive <laughs> that these sites can't run it that profitably anymore. But we're not there yet. Uh, but before we go, and Edley, maybe I'll ask you to close us out uh, with a thought about this new film. Disney's comedy could end up being a barometer for the box office. They're planning to release Free Guy. You've probably seen the trailers. Strictly in theaters this weekend. This is a huge distinction. They are apparently banking that Delta variant won't prevent moviegoers from hitting theaters in person or shutting them down altogether. Disney's first wide theatrical release since October 2020. Also, Ed, since they've had this big uh, skirmish with Scarlett Johansson uh, over her, you know, what she was supposed to have been paid because they went streaming. What are the expectations around the, how well this movie is going to do? Because honestly, the news flow all week, even on Delta, has not been that great. Yeah, I think uh, what Disney's doing is they're, and the way they phrase it is they're experimenting, right? They're, with this movie, we're going to put it in theaters and give it a bigger window to see how much, you know, we can really goose the box office before we do that up, that upcharge on, on Disney+. Plus. Other movies like, like the Scarlett Johansson movie, they're like, well, we really want to sort of amp up uh, Disney+, Plus, so we're going to put it a day and date on there. So I think it's, it's, it's a smart thing to experiment. It's a smart thing to figure out where's the sweet spot around that, especially as Delta sort of, you know, resurges. Yeah. At the same time, everyone in Hollywood is super mad. Right? Yeah. So it's not just Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> I think she represents the, the anger for, from a lot of talent in, in Hollywood. Disney's always been a tough sort of studio to work with. Mm. They've been the toughest. They've also been the most lucrative. This just makes it tougher. So I think that's a risk factor, right? So if they're just going to keep experimenting in a way that kind of messes with the sort of the star system messes with sort of the, the existing ecosystem yeah. of how Hollywood runs, you know, they might lose out on talent. They might, you know, they, the talent might go elsewhere. They might go to HBO or Warner to, to do these other kinds of films. And I think that's something that Bob Chapek really has to uh, pay closer attention to, uh, at least for the long it's term. It's a business model gamble, not just a box office one. Quick show of hands. Have any of you been right. to a theater since the pandemic to, to see a movie in person? You know, you have recently? Once. Just once? once. And I don't expect to go back. I mean, with what's going on with Delta, I think, you know, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. And that's what I wonder uh, about in terms of turnout. We'll all be watching this weekend to see how that movie does. Thank you guys all. We really, really appreciate it. Ina Freed, Ed Lee and Deirdre Bosa for Rapid Fire today. Up next, the amazing story of the family that's been traveling the world for the past four years, visiting 40 countries. Just look at how they're enjoying themselves. And where did they get the money for this? They sold everything they owned several years ago and bought Bitcoin when it was under a thousand bucks. So how are they keeping all that crypto safe? We'll talk about that. And Elon Musk heading to Germany to fix what one analyst calls a logistical nightmare for the company. That's ahead. Don't go anywhere. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Tropical depression Fred could strengthen back into a tropical storm before it threatens Florida. Fred is currently drenching parts of Cuba. The National Hurricane Center is forecasting that Fred will drop three to seven inches of rain on the Florida Keys and southern Florida by Monday. And on the news, soaring temperatures in the western U.S. and preparations for Fred in Florida. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. And in Berlin, a solemn ceremony to mark the 60th anniversary of the start of construction on the Berlin Wall. It became an icon of the Iron Curtain separating Eastern and Western Europe. Over three decades, at least 140 people died trying to go over or under the Berlin Wall in attempts to flee to the West. And the CDC wants more information on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine before recommending extra doses for people with weakened immune systems. The CDC has approved third shots for immunocompromised people who received Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. The CDC advisory panel is meeting now to discuss changes to its vaccine recommendations. Kelly, you're now update. I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. Now to the story that has been burning up CNBC.com all week. It's about a family, the Bitcoin family, the Bitcoin bunch, whatever you want to call them. In 2017, they sold everything and put it all into Bitcoin when it was under a thousand bucks. CNBC.com tech reporting Mackenzie Sigalos is here with more. She's got an update on the family and how they've been doing since traveling the globe, Mackenzie. <laughs> hey, Kelly. Yes, they have been. I first met Didi Taihutu, his wife and three daughters, four years ago when they had just sold their house, their business, their shoes in order to make this massive bet on Bitcoin. And remember, back then, the cryptocurrency didn't have the same level of mainstream adoption and institutional backing that it does now. And even when the crypto winter hit in 2018, wiping out a good portion of their life savings, they doubled down, buying even more Bitcoin and diversifying into other cryptocurrencies. Now, we don't know exactly how much they've put in, but at least a couple hundred thousand dollars at the start, and it's appreciated more than 5,000% since then. So it's certainly enough to travel the world, and that is definitely what they've been doing for the past four years. They've lived in or visited 40 different countries since I first met them. I guess my questions are sort of how are they monetizing this? There's a lot of yield plays you can do with Bitcoin, but people don't always trust all of these different platforms. And they have, I presume they don't want to sell it, all of it, but they can kind of sell as they go. And then the security issue. So it, for the Bitcoin that they do have, you know, the storage, the access, again, going back to this platform and the trustworthiness issue, it must be a lot to deal with. Yeah. No, on your first point, they're big believers in spending the Bitcoin and just, you know, making sure that they're a part of this uh, Bitcoin economy and, and, and really using it for that cryptocurrency use case. So for them, it's not as much of a profit play. Um, and in terms of the, the storage side of it, the family is a big believer in cutting out any sort of middleman. So what they've done is they've taken 74% of their crypto portfolio, specifically their Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin, and they've put it into cold storage. And what that means is that they've put their crypto on these thumb drive-sized hardware wallets that aren't connected to the internet. And they've hidden them on four different continents in six different places as a way to safeguard their virtual coins from hackers. And even though this sounds like the stuff of a movie, Mackenzie, a lot of people who want to own their keys to their coins, so to speak, have to do the same kind of thing, right? I mean, it, it's not that far-fetched to say that you need to store that password or that, you know, in different places, because if, you, if it's just sitting there in your house and someone grabs it, they could theoretically get your Bitcoin. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, companies like Square and Jack Dorsey are working to create their own hardware wallet options that are more accessible because I think a lot of people are, are afraid to custody their own Bitcoin because that's a huge responsibility. All right. So speaking of Bitcoin, Mackenzie, while you're here, we also have this other issue going on with uh, just what exactly the mining profitability share is becoming. Uh, talk through the early stages of what we're learning about how this change is affecting Bitcoin mining right now. Yeah, so about every two weeks, like clockwork, Bitcoin resets how tough it is for miners to mine. And early this morning, the Bitcoin code automatically made it about 7.3% more difficult to do the job of mining. And the reason that this happened is that some of the miners that used to be in China before the crypto crackdown are now finding new homes elsewhere. Remember, we lost more than half of all miners this spring, which meant that for a few months, it was a lot less competitive and more profitable for everyone who was still plugged into the network. But unsurprisingly, miners are coming back online and things are getting more competitive and less lucrative. Yeah. And a lot of people sort of following the blockchain are saying all of these have been stress test like events that it's been able to kind of digest and still keep chugging along. Mackenzie, we really appreciate it. Great reporting. And thanks for joining us with all of it. Mackenzie Sigalos. And for more on both of her stories, head over to CNBC.com. The S&P 500 hitting another intraday high today. The latest leg of this rally not led by big tech or the big banks. We'll tell you which sector has been as hot as the weather right after this. Markets have rocketed to record highs, and unlikely sectors leading the way this time. Utilities are the best-performing sector in the S&P this past month, up 6%. Frank Holland is looking at all the reasons why. Frank? Hey there. Well, a balmy 85 degrees could be the average U.S. temperature in August, as heat waves are forecast to make it up to 13% hotter than normal. I talked to Dan Leonard of Weather.com, often thought of as Wall Street's weatherman. He says his models are similar, with even more heat coming. So heat waves are partly why utilities are on a hot streak. The sector, the best performer in the S&P over the last month, electric providers like NextEra Energy, Evergy, Eversource, and Southern Company, some of the very best performers. So work from home continuing because of the Delta variant, that could be another catalyst for utilities. If you look back from January to May in 2019, 46% of electric generation that went to residential customers. This year, that number's increased to 49%. It's a higher margin business than commercial and industrial, which is often referred to as CNI. The margins that you're capturing for a residential customer for a utility can be $20 to $25 per megawatt hour versus $5 per megawatt hour for a CNI customer or less. So ESG investing has also given utility stocks a big boost. The five biggest by market cap, all announcing plans to reduce carbon emissions Duke Energy, one of the largest customer bases and also one of the most ambitious plans. Also, with the recent decline in bond yields, dividends are another driver for utilities. The five biggest had a dividend higher than the 10-year yield is currently. Enbridge with the largest dividend, almost 7%. Kelly? Looks all the more attractive in a low-rate environment. Frank, thank you very much. Frank Holland. Elon Musk touring Tesla's Germany plant today, hoping to start producing cars in October there. But how important is it to the company's growth? We'll dive into it next on The Exchange.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Tesla shares are soaring in the second half of the year, up about 25% there. It would kind of be the first half. But anyway, Elon Musk is betting on overseas to keep this rally going. The CEO visited the company's under-construction Berlin plant today, saying they expect to make the first cars there in October. But how important are these ambitions to Tesla's future? Joining us now on the phone is Dan Ives. He's managing director at Wedbush Securities. Dan, you've still got, I think, a $1,000 price target here on Tesla. How key is the Germany factory in getting it quickly online? Yeah, Berlin's a linchpin to the broader global thesis from a demand perspective, but especially capacity. Right now, the issue for Tesla, it's not demand, it's supply. And this is key, planting the flag in Europe, that that's going to be a massive market. Right now, logistically shipping cars from China, that's really been a big issue. We believe this is, along with Austin, the hearts and lungs of the capacity build-out of Tesla as part of this green tidal wave over the next decade. So what indications are you getting about the Berlin factory, which, you know, it's to some, I don't want to call it controversial, but, you know, certainly he gets pressed by reporters in Germany about the factory, whether energy usage or other uh, issues. You know, how, what kind of read are you getting about its uh, capability to quickly come online? Yeah, I think six months ago, a bit more negative. Today, we're starting to see a lot more positives in terms of getting through the red tape in Germany. It looks like now this could be live by October, and that's significant for a company that next year we could do 1.3, 1.4 million units. And I think if they start production there along with Austin, that's the one-two punch to really take it to the next level from a capacity perspective. Right now, every car Tesla makes, they're selling. It's a supply issue. And I think this is really a major step in the right direction. It's not even a Trojan horse, Dan, that Germany is letting in. It's, it's Tesla coming in to announce, hey, we want to make your country the hub of our European ambitions. Well, Germany is currently the region's biggest automaker. Its car makers are extremely important to its national identity. Do you expect that to cause friction over time? Well, I think it definitely caused friction, especially with many German automakers now going aggressively dive into the deep end of the pool on EVs. But, but it really comes down to having Giga within Berlin. That's a feather in the cap for Berlin and Germany as well from an EV perspective. And I think they've recognized, as China has, and even you know, cities like Austin, Tesla continues to really lead the charge on EVs. But it's part of an arms race. And ultimately, this is just one brick that they're building as part of a broader build-out in terms of this next level of capacity for Musk and company. So what do you think has been going on with the shares this year, and why a $1,000 price target? Yeah, I think right now just more competition. Uh, you know, last if you look last year, it was a Cinderella story for the stock. This year, more competition from, of course, GM, Ford, and then international players as well as China. I think China has been a major overhang in the story. We saw stumbles from a demand perspective. I think that reaccelerates into the second half of the year. And to me, really, this is... As we get into the next one to two years, I think it's a four-digit stock because this continues to be the best way to play EV along with the broader supply chain, and now it's getting built out. We view it as a $5 trillion market opportunity as part of the green tidal wave. Contessa continues to be one of our top picks. And there we see Tesla shares, again, up about 2% year-to-date trading, around $720. Dan Ives with a $1,000 price target. A reminder of how important this Berlin factory will be for their ambitions. Dan, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Dan Ives from Wedbush. And that does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.